Hello everyone, my name is Daniela Lake and this is Life Told by Stranger. Life Told by Stranger is a podcast where we hear about the different backgrounds, experiences, hardships, and dreams from people who have lived all walks of life. I started this podcast when I was 15. I'm going to be 18 soon, and listening to all these people's stories throughout these years has really helped me embrace my own uniqueness, and in turn, I hope it can help all of you embrace yours. My guest today is David McMillan. Well, I am a Los Angeles native, so born and raised. I grew up most of my childhood in Inglewood, California, and then my mom and I moved to Santa Monica when I was about 14 years old. So pretty big change going from Inglewood to Santa Monica, and I was switching schools as well. So I had gone to uh, a parochial school where you wore uniforms and you addressed your teachers by Mr. and Mrs., And then I went to a school called Crossroads in Santa Monica, where everyone calls their teachers by their first name. And it was a pretty uh, lax, liberal environment. But uh, but they had a great theater program. And I was really interested in theater and film at the time. So uh, it was the perfect place for me to go. Tell me more about your interest in theater and film that you have. Yes. So uh, I... You know, my mom put me in a bunch of different things uh, when I was young. She put me in baseball and um, other pursuits, but I really gravitated towards theater. And so I acted in plays. I did the Shakespeare uh, summer camp and uh, then discovered that I had a singing voice. And so I started doing musicals. And uh, I think my first musical uh, when I was at Crossroads was Godspell. So I did Godspell. I did Into the Woods. Um, and that sort of, you know, set me on this track pretty much until, um, I was 20. I ended up going to Yale for undergrad and I did a bunch of, uh, plays while I was there. But while I was at Yale, I really discovered that, that I also loved writing and loved being behind the camera and behind the scenes. And I started to shift my interest into film and filmmaking. I gradually sort of transitioned from just being an actor to, uh, wanting to write and direct my own stuff. So tell me more about your writing and filmmaking career. Today, I, I am a screenwriter. I um, am fortunate that I work both in television and film. It was definitely a winding road to that place. And it, it did not happen overnight. You know, I was a 20-year overnight success. I mean, that's basically... Um, my my career in a nutshell. But I, after finishing Yale uh, undergrad, I went directly to film school. I came back to LA, enrolled in USC film school, and I took kind of by chance this television writing course. And it really opened my eyes to the possibility of television. This was right around the time when The Sopranos and The West Wing and 24 uh, were really kind of changing the, the television landscape and uh, really expanding the possibilities of storytelling. So I kind of decided to focus or shift my focus into television and wrote a couple of TV specs. Um, specs are basically scripts of existing shows. The first spec script David wrote was for the show West Wing. He used all the same characters, but made up the plotline and scenes. 
The spec didn't get produced, but it helped David get his first agent, and he was incredibly optimistic as anyone would be. But in 2007, there was a writer's strike. For 100 days, 12,000 film and television screenwriters went on strike demanding increased funding. During the 100 days, production was shut down, and writers like David couldn't work. And so I had to pay the bills somehow, so I ended up teaching for a little bit. I taught at my uh, old high school, Crossroads. On the side, to stay creative, I started making these political satire videos, putting wigs on and pretending to be various different characters. And I put the videos on this new site at the time called YouTube. And YouTube found my videos and they were like, wow, your stuff's uh, crazy. And, you know, if you're not doing anything, we'd love to hire you as sort of an unofficial correspondent. This was sort of the lead up to the uh, 2007-2008 presidential race with Barack Obama. And so long story short, I ended up working as a news and politics editor for YouTube during that election cycle. I was living in San Francisco. I was doing very well. And I kind of had to make a decision like, you know, do I keep going down this path, um, you know, making a, a decent amount of money, but not really doing what I was passionate about? Or do I sort of take the leap and try to, to make another go at screenwriting? Well, the decision was sort of made for me because I was laid off. And so that sort of forced me uh to move back to LA and I took a job at a startup to make ends meet, but I was like, okay, I'm going to make another go at this. I'm going to keep on writing and hopefully, uh, you know, knock down some doors and, and try to get back into the, to the writing entertainment game. And eventually I reconnected with someone who had gone to my high school, this writer producer named Alex Kurtzman. He, and his writing partner uh, were very successful, still are very successful. They wrote uh, Star Trek, the, the new Star Treks that came out uh, a couple years ago. Uh, they produce um, Hawaii Five-0 and a bunch of other shows. So extremely successful. So Alex actually hired me first as a PA on a film that he directed and then uh, later as his uh, assistant. So I worked for Alex uh, for about a year, and then they were developing a show called Sleepy Hollow uh, for Fox at the time. And when that show uh, went to series, Alex put me on that show as the writer's assistant. And so I worked on that show for two seasons, ended up writing a script before I left. And then once I left Sleepy Hollow, that sort of jump-started my career and, and helped me to get back on track. You know, it took a little bit of time for me to get back in the the entertainment world and it's just sort of sort of goes to show that you know careers are not straight lines and they're not perfect ladders like sometimes you have to take these detours that you don't expect but hopefully you grow and you take something away from them uh but if you you know and i don't want to uh, resort to cliches or anything but you really do have to find your passion and you know, really ask yourself, you know, how, how much are you willing to sacrifice for it? How much are you willing uh, to work for it? Because it is hard to follow your passion and you will be tested and you will have to decide. And there's nothing wrong, by the way, with deciding, you know what? Entertainment is hard. Screenwriting is hard. 
Uh, I'm going to go to law school. I certainly entertained law school uh, a number of times, and I'm fortunate that I had people, my mom and other mentors who said, no, David, you've worked too hard. This is what you were meant to do. So, you know, yeah, but but just know that if it's worth pursuing, it is going to be challenging. So. so what do you think your biggest obstacle on this winding road mm-hmm. of your mm-hmm. your career was? Speaking specifically about entertainment, there are professions where there's a, a very clear ladder um, you go to law school or you go to medical school and there's sort of, a, you know, a, a number of benchmarks that you can sort of, you know, realize in advance and know, okay, I'm moving in the right direction. And I don't think, I mean, being an entrepreneur is, is also similar. Like there, there's no real set path for it. And so you really have to embrace the challenges and the adversity that come along, but stay focused while you're doing that. So for me, it was important, you know, even when I was working, taking jobs that I wasn't passionate about, for me to continually wake up every morning and write uh, to make sure that I was, you know, connecting with people, networking with people, uh, doing something every week that hopefully got me a little bit closer to my goal. Um, and then, you know, eventually, um, you know, you'll work, you'll work, your work, and, and you might not see the fruits of your labor for uh, a little while, but then suddenly, you know, someone says yes, and that changes everything. And so I think, um, and I, I, thought about this for one of the the questions that you sent. I mean, really embrace, you know, uh, a a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Uh, Adversity is something that I think can make you stronger as a person and also clarify your goals. Because if something, if, if, you know, you hit a a roadblock and you will, and you decide, you know what, it's just not worth it, then maybe it wasn't worth it. Maybe you should pursue something, you know, that's not as hard or not as challenging. But if you're still committed after hitting that roadblock to go for it, then I think you you owe it to yourself and to your passion to just keep going. It never feels good to fail. It never feels good to be fired. It never feels good uh, to write something and and people uh, tell you that it sucks. But if you can grow from that and and use that as inspiration to become better, I think you will be, you know, not just a, a better writer, director, creative person, entrepreneur, but I think it'll help you just be a, a stronger human being. So why screenwriting? What drew you to it? It's a very simple answer, but it's fun. It's a lot of fun to make up stories um, and kind of, you know, bring them to life and work with really talented people. Stories are a really interesting way of tackling issues and tackling problems without feeling lectured, without feeling that, oh, okay, someone's giving me a lecture about racism or sexism or inequality. You can dramatize that. You can you can uh, make that something that that people want to watch. I mean, you know, I, I recently watched the uh, Netflix limited series "When They See Us" about mm. the Central Park Five. Oh, I've seen a documentary. Yeah, the, and the documentary is also the the, the Ken Burns documentary is also uh, very good. But I thought Ava DuVernay did a, a, a amazing job, and and you're engrossed. You're engrossed by this story of these kids 
whose lives were destroyed um, and you feel for them and you empathize with them and the performances are extraordinary and the writing is extraordinary and the directing is extraordinary, but it's also dealing with these very painful issues of race and racism and class and in a way that, you know, it doesn't feel heavy handed. It doesn't feel that you're being lectured to, but you can't walk away from watching that story without feeling like, oh God, that's so screwed up. Um, and without having learned something in the process. If you were to write an, an autobiography. Uh, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. What is one story you'd have to include? You know, it's so funny. You sent that question to me last week and I had a, like a predetermined answer. Um, but something recently happened and I can't because I, I just got, I just got hired for the job and I actually can't talk about it publicly, mm -hmm. but I can sort of talk about, um, I, I can talk about it in general and kind of the, the crazy serendipity of it. So, um, in 2007, I wrote this script and it was, it was actually during the writer's strike. I, I wrote a script during the writer's strike. Um, and I was hoping once the writer's strike was over, I would give it to my agents and they would use that, um, script to send around to, you know, hopefully get me a job somewhere. Uh, so the writer's strike ended and I sent that script to my agents at the time. I won't say who they were. I, won't, I don't want to embarrass them. Um, but I sent it to them and they called me and they said, David, this script is so great. It's one of the best scripts you've ever written. Unfortunately, we have to drop you as a client. Um, and they were dropping a lot of their clients after the writer's strike um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, so, yeah, basically, I they, they complimented me and then fired me wow. <laughs> as their client. So that pretty much sucked. And uh, I put that script away. And really hadn't um, taken it out of it of the uh, you know uh, out of my um, shelf for all these many years. So I got a call about a week ago from a friend of mine saying, "Hey, there's this show that's happening, um, and uh, I need you to give me two samples." This particular script was the perfect sample for this show, and I hadn't used that script. In 12 years, I had, uh, you know, written other scripts and, and done other things, but I was like, you know what? I'm going to submit this as one of the samples, uh, for this show. And, uh, sure enough, um, the, the person who was hiring writers read it and loved it. And that was one of the reasons I got hired on this show. And it's crazy to think that something that I wrote 12 years ago, uh, would somehow get me a job today. The lesson of that is that no effort is ever wasted. You know, you think you write something or you create something and it doesn't get the reaction you hoped for. It doesn't, you know, d seem to do anything. You think, you know, what, what was the point of that? I, I spent all this time working on something and it didn't materialize into anything. And then to think that 10, 12 years later, that thing you did helps to sort of propel your career or wins you something. It's, it's just one of those things you have, you always have to keep in mind about life. Again, life, even though we live it linearly, it doesn't always work out that way. That's definitely a story. And the other is when I got laid off, uh, from Google YouTube, 
you know, again, that was a, a, a very challenging time. And I decided rather than write a screenplay, I was going to write a play. I grew up in Los Angeles around the time of the O.J. Simpson trial. And I remembered that trial very vividly because I was living in Inglewood, but I was also going to school in Santa Monica. And I actually had a, a friend who lived across the street from O.J. Simpson. So I remember how blacks and whites viewed that trial so differently. So I decided to write a play about it. And, and really from the point of view, not of the attorneys or any of the famous people involved, but from everyday people, um, black, white, Asian, who were, you know, all friends and living together. Um, and you see their relationship before the verdict and then you see it after the verdict and the racial hostility and tension, uh, that erupts to the surface. And so I wrote this as a play, didn't know again what the hell I was going to do with it. But it ended up being probably the most significant thing I've written to date because we actually ended up doing a production of it that got a bit of attention. I've gotten several jobs off of it. And it, it really was the thing that I think helped propel my career more than any other script that I've written. Again, it just goes to show you you have to write something that comes from you. Um, or create something. And I'm, I'm a writer, obviously, so I'm, I'm talking a lot about writing. But I think it can apply to anything that you do. It has to come from you. If it feels like this is a, a, a person who has a vision and they have a, po a strong point of view and a creative point of view that I haven't seen before, I think that's what's going to get people to lean in um, and really respond to your work. So, and I think that's applicable across a, a number of professions. This season, I asked all my guests to choose a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay on self-reliance that they feel relates to their life in some way. Self-reliance talks about following your intuition, being a nonconformist, and more. I'm I'm a big fan of Emerson, and so I was I was delighted to have an excuse to go back into this essay. And it's funny because you provided a couple of of quotes, but you didn't provide the most famous quote in this uh, essay. It's it's it starts with the paragraph: "A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, adored by little statesmen and philosophers and divines," and it ends uh, with the quote, to be great is to be misunderstood. And I think, uh, and then that's, a, that's a quote that I, I think in, in and of itself gets misunderstood a lot. But, I, you know, the general gist of it and what I love is that, you know, we, we pride ourselves or we, we tend to applaud people who are consistent in their thinking especially politicians. And we criticize politicians. Uh, we call them flip-floppers. You know, they believed one thing, you know, 10 years ago, and now they believe something else. And I think that the whole point of life is to grow and to change. And especially if you are someone who thinks deeply and, you know, wants to evolve as a person, you're going to change your views on a lot of things. And you don't necessarily... You know, the person that you were, uh, you know, even five years ago is going to be different, hopefully, for the better than the person that you are today. And so uh, I think consistency is overrated, um, at least when it comes to, um, you know, ideas and beliefs. And you should constantly 
be reevaluating your beliefs and reevaluating your views on things because I think, you know, again, as we get older, uh, hopefully we gain greater empathy for other points of view. And so we're not so certain of our rightness and, and our position. And we're more curious, more curious about the world and, and beliefs that are different from ours. So, so I, so I, you know, I, I really resonate with this quote because I think to be great is to be misunderstood because you know, to be great is to constantly be evolving, constantly be changing. Um, and that should be something that we all strive for. I feel like every day you're changing a little bit. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And you may not see, you know, you, we, you live with yourself, right? So it's hard for you to see those changes, but a person that you haven't seen in a couple years, mm-hmm. or certainly if you haven't seen them since you were kids, you know, they obviously will notice a difference in lots of respects. So yeah, hopefully we are growing and we are, because there's no such thing as stasis. You're either growing or you're not growing, you're devolving. And and hopefully, you know, um, I hope to continue growing until I'm a very old, wizened man and staying vital and, and constantly questioning things. And I also love this quote, man postpones or remembers he does not live in the present, but with reverted eye laments the past or heedless of the riches that surround him stands on tiptoe to foresee the future. He cannot be happy and strong until he too lives with nature in the present above time. And I, you know, I, I love this because it just, it, the simple message is live in the moment. We are constantly sort of looking ahead and, and, you know, hope, you know, hopeful that the next stage will bring us happiness or looking backward and saying, oh man, you know, when I was in college or when I was in middle school, I was so much happier. I didn't have any of these problems. And, and I think that you really, and it takes discipline. It takes, um, uh, discipline to appreciate the things that you have and to appreciate, um, you know, the, the riches and the friendships and the opportunities that are, are here in this moment. And I'm guilty of it. We all are guilty of, of anticipating our future happiness, mm-hmm. um, and not appreciating things in the moment. So it's always nice when someone like Emerson says, Hey, like look around, take in this moment because this moment is precious. What do you value the most in a person? I think this is a great question and really boils down to curiosity, both in people and ideas. I love when, when I meet someone, I love when they ask me questions. Getting to know a person, really wanting to know um, what they're about and, you know, not just like, you know, where are you from or what do you do for a living, but really like, what are your interests? Like, what do you care about? What gets you excited? You know, I think that type of curiosity is something that I really value. And, and certainly all of my friends are, are very curious people and being curious about the world, being curious about things that are outside of your frame of experience. I think that uh, the opposite for me of curiosity is is a, a kind of arrogance where you believe your point of view and your world and the things that you know are more important than anyone else's. And so you don't take an interest in other people's experience. And so, and, and by the way, I think that type of 
small-mindedness. You know, you can find that in rural America. You can find it in Los Angeles and in uh, Manhattan, where people think that the world revolves around them and they're not interested in learning about other cultures and other ways of life. And so, you know, I, I, I hope to stay curious because I think there's just so much in the world to be curious about. So putting aside money, mm, mm. fear, yeah. and insecurity, yeah. What is one thing you would love to do if there were no stakes yeah. and you had all the freedom in the world? I would love to take my mom and maybe a couple of my best friends and travel the world. Because I, I, I've traveled to places by myself um, or with like one other person. And, you know, it's a lot of fun. But I think it would be really great to travel with like the closest people in your life and just to go to all the amazing cities and all the amazing countries in the world. And, and my mom in particular, who has not, I don't think she's ever been outside of the continental United States. So it would actually be really fun to travel with her and to, to go to these places. So that would probably be like the top thing for me. I hope you all enjoyed listening to this episode of Life Told by a Stranger. This is only part one of David's interview, so stay tuned for part two coming out on Wednesday. And follow us on Instagram at Life Told by a Stranger. (laughs) 